Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Business of Medicine series on ENT in a Nutshell. I'm your host, Ashlyn Asiri, and today we are joined by Dr. Tom Lee to discuss measuring and improving the patient experience. Dr. Lee, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Before we begin, I'd like to introduce you to our guest. Dr. Lee has more than 35 years of experience as a clinician, healthcare leader, and health policy expert. He has pioneered the role of the physician in shaping and improving patient care and the greater healthcare system. He is a co-founder and the editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine Catalyst, Innovations in Healthcare Delivery. He has served as the chief medical officer at Press Ganey since 2013, where he has developed clinical and operational strategies to help providers measure and improve the patient experience. Today, he has graciously joined us to shed some light on this increasingly important topic. Dr. Lee, let's start at the basics. The term patient experience has become ubiquitous in the hospital setting and quality improvement conferences in more recent years. That being said, it's frequently used in different contexts with different implications. Can you help define what this term means to you and how it ties into other aspects of healthcare? Well, thanks, Ashley. And, you know, I want to say this is a question that on the surface might sound boring, but it's really, really interesting. Uh, it, it's, it reflects a huge change in the nature of healthcare and the nature of how we think about making healthcare better. Uh, if you go back before the turn of the century, people talked about patient satisfaction. And over time, that has given way to the phrase patient experience. Now, why is that? I mean, what's happened is that patient satisfaction, it suggests that patients are consumers and, you know, were they satisfied or not? You know, did this meal meet your expectations? Yes or no. And because healthcare is complicated and people's needs are complicated, uh, what's happened is, is that people have realized that satisfaction, yes or no, isn't, doesn't really capture what really matters. What really matters is everything that people are going through. Yes, they might have been satisfied with every individual thing, but could they still be in anguish and miserable? Uh, that is what really matters. So trying to really meet patients' needs, look at, look at the experience from their perspective, is what the use of the term has evolved to mean. I think that it's a recognition that healthcare is so complex now. There's so many people involved. Uh, our needs, emotional and otherwise, are real. And trying to get a handle on how are we doing in meeting those needs, that is what real excellence is all about. So the patient experience encompasses several factors, but when we think about care delivery overall, what are the main components that shape the way a patient experiences healthcare? Well, when I got to Prescani in 2013, the first thing I did was take, you know, some of the research techniques that I had learned doing clinical epidemiology on chest pain and perioperative risk and so on, and apply them to these enormous data sets to try to get at that question of what really matters to patients. You know, what drives their trust in us that they're likely to recommend us as individuals, as organizations. And what we found in every setting, in inpatient care, outpatient care, uh, emergency departments, it was the how with which care was delivered. You know, it wasn't the what, uh, but it was the how. You know, was the care delivered with compassion 
Did people seem to care about you? Was it coordinated? Did people actually communicate well about what was going on? Patients can't tell whether care is technically excellent, but they can tell whether people are working well together. Uh, they can tell whether people seem to care about them and whether they're trying to communicate with them. Those are the big drivers that cut across every setting. There are some other issues that have uh, emerged in, uh, in inpatient settings and also all settings in the COVID era, which are people are really concerned about their safety now in ways that they weren't before. They took it for granted before. But now if, if, the, if the place is not clean, uh, patients feel vulnerable in ways that they 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 might have they might have shrugged off in the past, um, so I would add uh, cleanliness with the implications it has for safety really matter in this unusual time that we're living through right now. Whenever we look to improve safety, quality, or the patient experience for a specific process, we have to have metrics in place before and after an intervention or change so that we can actually evaluate and measure any desired or undesired outcomes. But when we're developing metrics to measure the patient experience, what are some of the measurable components that we should consider implementing? Uh, well, that's a great question. I'll say something about measurable components, and then I'll say a little something about unmeasurable components, because uh, a lot of the times the things that matter are just outside the spotlight that we might be looking at with questions um, that, you know, that we're asking. Um, so at the highest level, you do want to know whether patients trust you. And the best marker for trust is likelihood to recommend. Uh, if, if they don't trust that you are going to have their interests at heart uh, and going to do your best, particularly during this COVID era redesign of care where things are being done differently all the time, uh, they've got to know that regardless of what happens, you have their interests as something fundamental uh, in guiding all of the decisions that you make and all the way you do things. So that likelihood to recommend is, you know, uh, the, a very, very important thing to have at the, at the top of your hierarchy. But just knowing whether or not they recommend you isn't enough. That's like, you know, saying like, you know, do you love me? And, and uh, you, where, you know, to actually try to get better, you need to get at the specific things that might make someone love someone and, and try to get better at them. So do people seem to be working well together, their coordination? Uh, even if you've got great clinicians that they've got confidence in, they've got wonderful diplomas hanging on the wall, if they don't feel like the teamwork is good, patients are nervous. So, so that question about coordination of care, does it seem like caregivers are in touch with each other and in sync with each other? That really, really matters. And asking patients directly about whether it's uh, apparent to them that they are or are not, that's a very important thing to check on. Then I actually think, you know, asking them directly about, does it seem like people care about you? Do they have your interest um, in mind? Um, 
that is that's critical. How how effective the communication is, uh, those things are obviously important as well. So I would say those are the most important. They certainly are more important for guiding improvement and making sure you're being reliable about doing the right things right uh, than like parking and food and things like that. Now, I said I'd say something about unmeasurable. Um, it's important to give patients the ability to write comments because analysis of narrative data turn out to, it turns out to be a gold mine. And I think, you know, we both know that everyone is influenced by stories more than numbers uh, and comments uh, comments affect us more than, than the numbers. All of us can remember our negative comments and the last comment we read is stuck in our, our mind more than the hundred that came before it. So, Capturing that narrative data actually is a wonderful driver of improvement. These days, a, a, a marvelous new functionality is the use of uh, AI, artificial intelligence, to do natural language processing. So you can look for trends across comments, across hundreds and even thousands and millions of comments. Saying what are the what are the themes and sub themes that characterize positive feelings and what are the themes and sub sub themes in the negative uh, feelings and, and those kinds of things can take you uh, from being aware that cleanliness really matters and uh, to our bathrooms are what are really upsetting patients so that's the kind of thing that can come from narrative data that you know you'd never bother have including a routine question how are our bathrooms uh, but giving patients the ability to write comments really matters. And these days it's very clear that collecting data electronically uh, encourages patients to write comments. It's easier. They write more comments and they write longer comments when they're responding at a, at, with a keyboard or on their smartphone. That's very interesting. Now, if we have, you know, this set of metrics that we'd like to, um, uh, gather from patients regarding their experience with their care. How do you implement actually gather gathering this data, and how do most practices or hospitals measure these outcomes from a logistics standpoint? Well, you know, it's it's evolving, and uh, it's evolving as rapidly as our culture is evolving. Um, I mean, you know, you go back to the turn of the century, the number of people with smartphones was uh, was vanishingly low. And now, you know, you, we all know how important they are in people's lives. So the um, collecting data electronically has become something that's become the default because you can get much more data electronically than by mail, you know, with uh, lower expense and you can get it faster. Now there's dynamic surveying has become uh, increasingly available so that, you know, you know, if everything seemed great, you probably don't have to answer 50 questions. You can, you know, uh, you know, if you say things were good, you know, a whole stream of questions will get shut off and you won't be exposed to them. And, um, and your survey might be just a 30 second experience. Whereas if you've got issues that you really want to get into, then uh, it's valuable for everyone, including the patient who's got something to get off their chest to be able to go through uh, a longer exploration of what didn't go well. Uh, and then there are 
pulse surveys or just-in-time surveys where uh, people are collecting data even during a hospitalization or during a procedure so that uh, so that service recovery, as they put it, can happen. Like if someone's not happy and they're in your uh, OR, in your OR or you know recovery room or something, you'd probably like to know. Um, there are even organizations that are monitoring social media so that if someone is writing on Twitter, I have been sitting out here in the emergency department waiting room for four hours. You know, frankly, you want to know if someone is sending out word like that out out on Twitter and, and the you don't want to suppress Twitter. But what you want to do is uh, find that person and try to relieve their their calls for complaints. So there's a lot of, uh, it's, it's a very dynamic field right now. The, the old time approach of sending people a mailed survey that they get a month after they were in the hospital, that is fading into the history books. Yes. And it seems like, you know, with the expansion of social media and electronic communications, there is just an ever expanding amount of information that we have to sift through and kind of interpret. And you know, many hospitals use Press Ganey to both evaluate and the current status of specific areas, um, but also to implement changes aimed to improve the quality of care or some of the issues that come up um, through trends in feedback. Can you speak to the process and how Prescani approaches these situations? Well, you know, I I would say that um, I mean I'm proud to be working where I am, but like I'm I I would hope that uh, people don't see me and the work my colleagues and I do as just doing surveys. I'm I'm hoping that what they see it as that they're uh, they're getting insights for how they're do how they are doing, and more important how they can get better. I think that having a growth mindset as the Stanford psychologist Carol Dweck puts it, uh, is critical. Uh, you know, the belief that you're not good enough now, no matter how good you are, even if you were the very best, uh, you've got to be trying to get better than you are. The sort of restlessness that you, you see for people who are at the top of every field, whether it's medicine or tennis or, uh, you know, or business, uh, the people at the very top are always restless in trying to get better and trying to help people understand that that is the goal and and data are important to help you. But the real purpose of the data is to get insights for how to improve. That is, you know, the core of the work. Now, the interesting nuance that's been developing in recent years is that people have been figuring out that the work shouldn't be viewed in silos. You know, you can't have good patient experience if you don't have doctors and nurses and other caregivers who are also having a good experience, who are, who are proud to be where they are, who uh, are, you know, really care about what the people they work with think of them. Uh, people who are feel like they're a member of a team and, and they care about what other members of the team feel and that the team really cares about what's happening to their patients. I mean, that's what we're all after. That's what we all want in healthcare. So that an integrated approach to excellence is very much what uh, I think 
you know, my colleagues and I are pushing and what more and more organizations uh, are, 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 are seeking as well. So you need integrated data on all these things and you need it at the level which action occurs. I mean, I don't think that, um, uh, you know, colleagues, your colleagues in ENT necessarily think of the, the, the data on the overall organization as relevant to them. They want to know how is our head and neck cancer team doing in, in, the, in the minds of patients. And it sounds like overall, just the idea of caring deeply about the patient experience and looking to improve it should just meld into as part of the culture of the institution and the practice. Are there any specific issues you've seen um, with fatigue around collecting this type of data? And I know that surveys aren't the only way to collect data, of course, but you know, traditionally there is the thought of exhausting patients with excessive data collection or survey fatigue and that kind of thing. How do you get around that and how do you more seamlessly integrate some of these metrics into daily practice? Well, and, you know, the fatigue affects not only patients, but the fatigue affects, uh, you know, doctors, nurses, and other caregivers. And uh, my guess is, is that many of your listeners will feel like they're being surveyed to death by their own organization and trying to uh, tie together the surveys into just one survey that sort of gets at the overall experience of the caregivers for being at whatever their institution is, is is a major goal that's hap- that's happening today. I do think people are exhausted in general, burned out in general, uh, but they care about what they really care about. I mean, that is one of the 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 consequences of the COVID era. Uh, when people feel vulnerable, they they get clarity on what really matters to them, and healthcare really matters to patients, so that. If anything, their likelihood of responding and responding with comments uh, and and real passion to surveys about their healthcare right now has gone up, and, th- and their positive feelings about caregivers has gone up as COVID has rolled out across the country. Will this persist beyond COVID? I'll bet. I'll bet it does because uh, people have been shaken up by this pandemic, and I don't see the anxiety. Uh, and concern about wanting caregivers they can trust going away. Now that said, I do think that uh, helping people, you know, give their feedback conveniently is very important. Um, it is so impressive about how much more readily people are ready to respond to surveys done by smartphone than by mail. Uh, you know, they respond uh, higher rates and they do it very quickly. Now, of course, they tend to be a little bit younger. Uh, but my guess is, is that people, you know, a generation younger than me, I'm in my 60s, if people are a generation younger than me and, and even younger, they are accustomed to giving feedback, you know, very rapidly. Now, when it's stuff that they really care about, like healthcare, you know, I do think we can, we can get that feedback. The bigger challenge is getting our colleagues in a mindset of wanting the feedback. You know, there's a lovely book called Thanks for the Feedback, which is not a healthcare book. It's from the Harvard Law School Negotiation Project. And it's about how 
we all have, uh, we all get feedback all the time in our personal lives and professional lives, but you know, we don't really want it. You know, we want to just be loved and accepted for the way we are. And the idea of getting feedback telling us we need to improve, none of us really want that. And so the first inclination is to push feedback away. And so when you hear providers say, I'm so tired of getting all these survey data, that's what it's a manifestation of. But the work that leaders have, and I do consider every physician to be a leader, the, the work that leaders have is to try to get themselves and others into the mindset of wanting to pull data towards them instead of push data away. And the reason they want to pull data towards them is because they want so much to get better than they currently are. They want to be in a growth mindset. You want people in a mindset of give me what you got because it's so important to me to get to get better. I'm not going to, you know, try to fend off data by pointing out all the problems with it. I think that's a really important point that you bring up uh, is that we implement metrics and we measure um, how patients are experiencing the healthcare we're delivering. But the most important thing that can come out of that is actually enacting change to improve that experience and change some of the undesired experiences that patients are going through. Do you have any opinions about um, some of the most common causes of lower scores on patient experience or most common themes that you've noticed uh, when you've evaluated other practices? Teamwork is a huge issue. Uh, teamwork is not as big not only for patients, but it's also huge for doctors, nurses, and other other people on the provider team as well. That is one of the big insights from looking at a lot of data is that patients want the same things that clinicians actually value too. And, you know, if I were to focus on one thing, I would say make sure the coordination of care is great and uh, that people really are talking to each other. Uh, I mean, I, I, you know, I can tell you I was interacting by email this morning with patients and just letting the patient know that, uh, that yes, the geriatricians and the neurosurgeons and I are all in touch and, um, and we're all saying the same thing. It meant so much to the patient to know that we were all on the same page. Uh, at the same time, you can imagine how patients feel when they get very clear signals that these people haven't talked to each other. They don't even know each other. You know, there are little subtle things uh, like I was, I just said, isn't Julia Lowenthal great? She's the geriatrician because uh, she is great. But knowing that having me say that, you know, gives the patient a message that we know each other. We actually like each other. We respect each other. And she probably is getting something great from this, you know, from this team. Um, so I think that um, teamwork, it means a huge amount to patients. They are scared that we aren't talking to each other. Uh, they know how many people are interacting with each other and they can tell when we don't know each other. And at the same time for clinician morale, physician engagement in general, uh, one of the hugest things, factors is do they feel like they're in an organization that values teamwork and that has good teamwork? And when they don't have it, they kind of want to leave and find some place that's better. 
Okay, so now for a big question. Let's say you do identify after you've implemented metrics and measured, you know, patient experience, staff experience, and you've identified, let's say, teamwork to be an issue at a specific practice or institution. How do you even go about implementing changes and what changes do you implement to kind of get that practice or group back on track? I mean, the work that you describe is, you know, challenging and it doesn't happen overnight. Uh, but, uh, you know, on a podcast, you want to give something practical that can, people can uh, can take to work with them. And one little model I love was developed by one of my colleagues. Her name is Chrissy Daniels. And it's a four, question, four questions that she first developed for physicians, individual physicians, but I use them now for groups as, as well. So, you know, if you're, say, in the head and neck cancer group, uh, what I would like to do at one of your meetings where you've got, you know, doctors, nurses, uh, you know, you know, radiology and scheduling people together, whatever. The first question is, what are we hoping patients are saying about us when they go home? You know, let's let everyone come up with three words. And it's probably stuff like coordinated and you know, competent and caring, you know, things along those lines. But you, everyone can write down three words, no more, no less, uh, so no one can dominate them. Uh, and then you see which ones are most common. And then, and then the second question is, what do we have to do reliably with every patient in order to uh, maximize the chances that they're going to feel that way? Uh, this is taking you into the high reliability world. Uh, the third question is, what are the barriers to us being that way? And then the fourth question is, does everyone on the team know that this is what's important? Just going through those four questions is a huge step down the high reliability road where people are come converging on, yeah, this is the way we want to be. And we are going to try our darndest to be this way, not just when we feel like it, but for every patient. And we're going to try to get, a, you know, we're going to try to prevent the failures and we're going to make sure everyone does. This is, I, I think this is what excellence is about. You know, the thing that's great about healthcare and challenging about healthcare is you are starting from scratch with every single patient. And the goal of all this Prescani stuff is not what have the numbers been in the last year. I mean, last year was last year. Uh, what really matters is what are we going to be like with the next patient we see? And that, that the future is what counts. The next patient is what counts. So setting, you know, the data can help inform you about what matters to your patients and, and where you need to, where you've got some challenges. But getting people in the mindset of what are we going to be like with the next patient we see, that's what I hope that we're helping do. And it seems like overall a common theme is just more openly communicating with patients about the work that you are actually doing that they just might not see because it's behind the scenes. Are there any other trends or anything else outside of communication or specific parts of communication that you have noticed that specifically improve the patient experience or that are more broadly recognized by patients? You know, it's an Really interesting time, and I'll say I'll make a few comments about uh, the nature of consumerism and how you know I think many physicians um, you know have noticed that today, like like in the old days, I would say to a patient, uh, "Well, you should go see Ashley in the series for you know for for this ENT issue." 
and they would go. Uh, now, uh, what I would, I would, I might find is I would make that recommendation and then find out that the patient went and they did their own web research. They looked up Ashley and Nasiri on the web and they looked up four or five other people and maybe they took my advice and maybe they didn't. And uh, so I've gotten over being irritated by that kind of phenomenon and, and, and come to accept that we're living in an age where people are checking out everything on the web before they go along with it. So what does this mean for us in our work? I think it actually means that we, have, we can't fight it. We have to accept it. And in fact, it's a good thing in, in many, many ways. Uh, we all want to be doing that kind of thing ourselves. So we can't really be mad when our patients want to do it. To my colleagues and I, what we're trying to do is figure out how can we help doctors and their organizations adapt and collaborate uh, with outside organizations so that they can look as good as possible when patients look them up on the web and, um, and then make it as easy as possible for patients to book them and, 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 and come to them. So, you know, this is, a, you know, the, the name for this kind of work is, it sounds horrible, reputation management. But uh, when they Google you on the web and they find nothing, that's not good. Uh, you know, if they go to sites like Health Grades and Vitals and they find like three reviews and, 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 they're, and some of them are by like a neighbor that's mad at you, that's not good. Uh, we are actually starting working with, uh, you know, we acquired a company called doctor.com and, and what it does is it sort of helps export information, to those sites. So as long as they're going to be out there and people are going to be searching on them, let's give them good information and let's give them all of our comments about, about you. And, and the fact is that, uh, have, you know, most comments are good and having a lot of comments itself, whether they're good, bad, or whatever, that sends a message that pay attention to this doctor. Uh, you know, it's like when you buy a book on Amazon, if there are two reviews, you probably don't buy it. But if there are 50 reviews, you don't even read the reviews, but you think, oh, okay, there's interest in this person. So one of the major shifts, I think, culturally that uh, your listeners should be thinking about is how do they interact uh, with the marketplace in this new consumerism era where people are going to be going to the web and looking things up. Uh, I think you want to make it easy for them to find good information. And then you want to make it easy for them to book you. Like, like uh, one of the functionalities is uh, if they can look up me online and they like what they see, they can just click and book 10.30 Friday morning. Now, that isn't the reality for me right now, uh, but it will be, I'm sure, very soon. And while we're talking about how things are heading in this uh, topic in the future, in your opinion, what direction does the delivery of healthcare need to move to improve the patient experience and even the quality of care? And what do you see happening over the next 10, 20, 30 years? I actually think the next decade is going to be really stressful, but really great. And that we will look back on this time as one in which we all 
went through a lot, but we ended up changing healthcare for the better. And we'll be proud of what we did, but it will be miserable along the way. I actually think that whenever things are getting better, it feels miserable because you're changing and changing is hard. But I do think that, uh, like Martin Luther King said, the arc of moral history is toward justice. The arc of healthcare history is to toward higher value patient-centered care. We're going to really be meeting patients' needs more and more, and uh, we'll be doing it more efficiently. Now, in order to do that, it's going to take teamwork. Uh, you know, we, we, you know, it can't just be doctors getting smarter and holding more in their heads and, and adding on more tasks to the end of their day. I mean, real teams that are co-located, you know, so you'd, you're bumping into the people you work with all the time. These things are going to matter more and more and more. It'll be hard for, for doctors in the old model of the solo private practice, for example. And there's a reason why those are, going away but they will they will go away you know the the younger people coming out of training they're not going into those kind of practices i i i don't wish ill for the people who are in them now but the future is in organizations that can support real teams delivering high value patient-centered care that's really meeting patients needs they're going to get the market for our listeners who are interested in learning more about these topics, um, but maybe don't have direct exposure to them at work or um, outside of work, do you have any specific resources outside of some of the texts that you've already mentioned um, that would be a good place to start? Well, I think that we're all really busy and we're all taking information in different ways and podcasts like this one are really valuable. I also think that uh, you know people taking information these days via video, they take in information by reading short summaries. I helped start something for the New England Journal of Medicine called NEJM Catalyst, uh, which is online and it's um, it's got lots of content that's free and lots some content that's behind a paywall that's part of a journal. But we do podcasts, we, we do video meetings, we do you know short articles that are case studies. Uh, we are trying to meet the needs that you talk about here. That said, I actually think that there are books that sort of change the way uh, one thinks about life and one's work. Uh, you know, one that I'd recommend was written by my cousin, Angela Duckworth, the psychologist at Penn, who's a big expert on grit. But in terms of understanding how one should think about one's life, about trying to find something you're passionate about and persevere in that passion, uh, having that overall perspective of, I'm going to be gritty. I'm going to figure out what are the ingredients I need in my life so that I am constantly pushing to get better uh, over decades, not just weeks. That's a critical ingredient as well. So uh, I, I think that uh, that big picture stuff for how one looks at one's life is every bit as important as the specific things like you know, this is what uh, is happening at uh, Cleveland Clinic or this is what's happening at Intermountain. Great. Dr. Lee, thank you so much for being on our show. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Um, do you have any last words of advice for our listeners? My advice would be appreciate the nobility of what we do. 
And we're, we're lucky to be working in a field that it's easy to be passionate about. And the, the word passion, it comes from the same Latin root as the word patient comes from, pator. And it, that means one who suffers. And patients suffer, obviously. But when you're passionate about something, you're willing to suffer for it. You know, the passion of Christ and, and so on and so on. And so we are in a field that is demanding, but it's worth it. And I think that keeping your eye on what patients are going through, that provides a constant source of motivation, a constant compass for what we should be trying to get better at. I think we have to be technically excellent, but understanding what patients are going through and easing their suffering, that's part of excellence. And, you know, uh, we need both technical excellence, but also excellence and reliability in that as well. And on that inspiring note, we'll wrap up our episode of ENT in a nutshell. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time.